I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, my name is Anne Foster, and you're listening to a very special episode of, well, it's sort of like Vulgar History Presents, colon, so this asshole. And this is a sneak peek, basically. It's uh, the first episode of a Patreon-only spin-off podcast I'm going to be doing. So Vulgar History Season 2 is coming soon. But as I'm researching these stories of interesting and scandalous women from history, sometimes I find a dude who's also interesting. Vulgar History is a story of women. There's been a lot of men's historians. I've written a lot of men's history. So I don't necessarily feel like those are as untold as the women's stories are. But basically, this is the first episode of So This Asshole, which is sort of where when I find some sort of like grosso guy when I'm researching the story of a scandalous woman, and I think there's enough to say about him that it merits his own little podcast, those are going to go here on, on this little side podcast. And because this is the first of these spinoff podcasts, I wanted everybody to be able to hear it so you can decide for yourself if this is something you're interested in hearing more of. And if you are... I'm on patreon.com slash Writer, but I'm so, I can't, the story I have to tell you today is bananas. And I guess another difference between Vulgar History Presents, colon, so this asshole, and the Vulgar History Mothership is that for the Vulgar History episodes, I do, I look at a bunch of different sources. I try and which one generally has to do because there's often not a lot of sources about the women who I'm researching. For the men's history, so this asshole episodes, there's, it's more just like when I'm reading about a woman's story and I find a man 
I'll share his story, but I'm not going to like delve into it um, through multiple sources. So that is why today is brought to you by basically a book called How to Ruin a Queen by Jonathan Beckman, which I can't recommend enough. It's an amazing historical true crime saga. And it's the basis, it's one of the research things that I looked at when I was preparing, I think the third episode of Vulgar History, which was about Jean de Lamotte, the affair of the diamond necklace, etc. If you don't remember what that was all about, you can listen to that podcast first if you want, or maybe after once you get the context of all of this. But I think even in that podcast, I was like, I mentioned this person. And I think I said offhandedly, like, that's just like a whole other story. And today, right here, I'm going to tell you that whole story. And this is based off of uh, the research from this book, How to Ruin a Queen by Jonathan Beckman, who just really, he did all the hard work for me for this, really. He looked at a bunch of different sources to put together a profile of a man who was known as Count Cagliostro. And that is who we're going to be talking about today. And this is a wild ride. So just get ready for it. So our story begins in Palermo in Sicily on June 2nd, 1743, when a little baby boy was born named Giuseppe Belsamo. His father was a jeweler who died shortly after the birth. So Giuseppe was brought up by his mother and an older sister. And he was basically the worst, like from infancy. When he was a child, he, um, and this is again, I'm reading this from the book, which you should read as well. But so he, quote, robbed his own uncle and terrorized the authorities and anyone else who unwisely strayed into his path. According to the word on the street, as a, this is like, again, he's still a child. Little Giuseppe had stabbed a priest to death, but no one was brave enough to testify against him. A child. So he got a pretty good education. He was especially good at chemistry and art. He briefly was enrolled to become a friar slash monk, but then he was apparently expelled from monk school for chanting the names of local sex workers when he was in charge of leading the monk prayers. So he's just like, he's a character. He's a, a, at all ages, in all moments of his life, he just always chooses the wildest choices. So he was very interested in art. Um, his own personal art was the art of counterfeiting and forging. Again, the book says he count forged everything from wills to theater tickets. He also claimed to be able to commune with ghosts and with the dead. He read widely about alchemy, astrology, all sort of like the new agey things of the 18th century. Basically, when he was about 20 years old, what happened is he, he convinced a local guy that if he paid him 60 pieces of silver, he, Giuseppe, would lead this other guy to a hidden, like, cave of wonders of treasures or something, but he needed the silver to vanquish the evil spirits who were guarding the treasure. Guess what? He left town with the silver pieces, and, and off he went to live this bonkers life. So from this point on, he just sort of traveled around the continent. He made basically different literal like snake oil type things like face creams that he said would like cure your diseases. And like he was really good at So he's a con artist slash forger slash spiritualist. 
He married a teenage girl named Lorenza Feliciani. And so they, he married her, a 14-year-old. He was, let me see, older than that by this point, 43, 20-something years old. He married a 14-year-old named Lorenza. Um, they lived with her parents. Then he didn't like the parents. So then they basically like ran away from home. They got a ride on a train from a guy who uh, Giuseppe worked as his secretary. And then he also prostituted his teenage wife to this guy as a form of payment or something. This is something that's going to happen a lot to Lorenza. And I don't think she was into it. Basically, um, the guy who was driving the train um, then ran away with all of their money. So then they ended up as beggars, um, Giuseppe and Lorenza. They ran into Casanova, who I assume is pers- a person I might dedicate another episode of So This Asshole to at some point in the future. They got along great, I guess. And then at around this point, they decided that they were going to pretend to be to be Italian nobles. Lorenza was renamed Serafina, um, and that's the name that we're going to call her by for the rest of this, because that is what she went by. And I think it's around this time that Giuseppe started calling himself the Count Cagliostro. And so their, their scheme at this point is that Serafina would seduce somebody, and then uh, Cagliostro would be like, oh, you know, I understand you slept with my wife, and that's fine, but could you get me some sort of, like, job, maybe as a apothecary or as an artist and this is just this worked for them i guess because he was so charming or something they just kind of like skipped from town to town as con artists in 1771 they wound up in england still pretending to be uh italian noblemen they started blackmailing people so the book describes this as blackmailing people who inexplicably found themselves locked in a bedroom with a naked seraphina so she was her job, and she's still... When did they get married? She's at least 20 by now, I think, but basically her job is to seduce people, be the, the whole honeypot situation, to get the money. In the next year, 1772, Serafina left Giuseppe briefly for a man that she was had been sleeping with for some sort of blackmail situation, but then the two of them fell in love with each other. Giuseppe then accuses this guy of trying to poison him with a with a poison glass of wine and a rotten egg, Serafina is sent off to live in a convent where she stayed for four months. 1776, still in England, Giuseppe establishes an alchemical laboratory and runs a racket selling winning lottery numbers. I don't know how he would be doing that. I guess I, I didn't realize that there was the lottery in 1776. And he becomes a Freemason, which is the famous secret society. So I'm not going to get into everything vis-a-vis Freemasons. But what happens is, so remember, he liked to read about alchemy and about spiritualism. So the Freemasons have a very, allegedly, I don't know, don't come and get after me, the Freemasons. But there's a definitely like a spiritual new agey side to all the stuff that they were doing. And he really was into that side of things. So he, he developed a belief that Freemason had been founded in ancient Egypt by a person called the Great Copt. Um, and then I think he started saying that he himself is, was sent by the Great Copt to, and he was 
brought on Earth to fight off the necromancers. Like, everything is just getting... He advised other people, if you want to live forever, what you need to do is you need to spend weeks on end in the forest, subsisting only on water and grass until your hair and teeth fall out and your skin peeled away. Uh, he used child mediums to tell the future. We're just going to skip ahead a little bit. But basically, through Freemasonry, he found a willing audience to all of his theatrics and con man stuff, and he made lots of money doing various things. So he and Serafina, who tragically was back with him, they ended up in... Where are they? Oh my goodness. So they went to St. Petersburg, Russia. At this time, Catherine the Great was ruling there. She was not into Freemasonry. She thought it was a dangerous harbinger of democracy. She wanted nothing to do with him. And later on, while he was there, he was sort of like a faith healer at this point. So he would find people, he would he was curing people and people were actually getting better. He did exorcisms. I'm just kind of skimming ahead because there's a lot of stuff we need to get to, but I hope you're getting sort of a sense of, of this man's whole situation. Eventually he was kicked out of the Freemasons for being too intense. And he had decided that he was not just someone who had been sent by the great Copt, who is the alleged ancient Egyptian inventor of Freemasons, but he himself was the great Copt. So he was basically saying that he was an immortal who was thousands of year old. And then he also offered free healthcare to the poorest members of society. So the doctors got mad at him. And the whole thing about like, and again, like some of the people he was helping, in fact, got better. And the reason that that happened was because this is like, where are we, 1780 in St. Petersburg, but basically most parts of Europe in 1780, like doctors weren't helping people very much. They were sort of, there's still the whole like, the humors, like let's bleed people, etc. Not an understanding about holistic medicine, you know, things like maybe if you eat better food, your immune system will be better. So he opened like literal soup kitchens. So he was helping people by really focusing on nutrition and what is called pastoral care. So he was like feeding people. So people who were sick, partially because of being malnourished, like got better from his help, whereas doctors didn't think at that time that that was important. So he was basically, literally saving people. And he also gave them his like crazy snake oil treatments as well. And he was treating poor people for free. But he was making money because he got a lot of people to like rich people saw what he was doing and wanted to like, be his patrons and sponsor him. Anyway, all this is happening. And then in September 1780, he was so famous that he caught the attention of a person whose name you might remember if you've listened already to the Jean de Lamotte episode, which is the person named the Cardinal de Rohan. So Cardinal de Rohan is the guy played in the movie, um, The Affair of the Diamond Necklace, starring Hilary Swank. Rohan is played by Jonathan Price. So that's kind of who I always picture. But basically, he's the man who was a gross-o who was obsessed with Marie Antoinette, wanted to be friends with her. And Jean de Lamotte took advantage of that to steal his money to buy the world's ugliest necklace, etc. Again, that's like the third episode of Vulgar History. So Rohan, who had some health problems, invited Cagliostro to come and stay with him in Saverne. And Cagliostro was like, no, thank you. 
And Rohan was like, no, 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 I really want you to treat my asthma. So then he went up to find Cagliostro wherever he was, I think in Switzerland. And the two of them just realized that each other were just sort of guys who liked fancy outfits and being awful. And they basically got along. And Rohan was also just really gullible. We saw that with the Jean de Lamotte situation as well. And so the two of them became friends. Cagliostro went to Severn to hang out with Rohan who was super rich, and that's the sort of person Kikluristo liked to hang out with. I'm assuming Serafina was with him. She kept trying to leave him, and it never quite worked, so she's probably there as well. But eventually, well, basically, the other people in Severn were like, these people are obviously grifters. Kikluristo and Serafina were forced out in 1783. And then if we sort of just like fast forward, so this is like Kikluristo and Rohan know each other. They lived together for a while. In 1785... So two days before Rohan was due to hand over the necklace to the queen as part of the whole affair of the diamond necklace, again, Folklore History Episode 3, Mr. and Mrs. Cagliostro arrived in Paris, and they were so famous, everybody was really excited to see them, not because of their being criminals, but because Cagliostro was this sort of like legendarily immortal person who could like cure everybody, and so they went to hang out with Rohan, who was now in Paris, and this is where they met. Uh, Jean de la Motte. Oh, and I should mention as well, Cagliostro had this thing where he was very well read. He thought he could speak a lot of languages, but he couldn't really. So he spoke in what is described here as a melange of Italian and mangled French interspersed with declamations in Arabic that he refused to translate. So he was, I think, making up words, but it was like literally an emperor's new clothes situation where everyone was so impressed and his charisma was so amazing. They're just like, assumed he was saying things that made sense. Basically, he was there. Jean de Lamotte was getting Rohan to help her with this scheme to steal this diamond necklace. And at the same time, Marie Antoinette was in the last stages of pregnancy. And Jean told Rohan that Marie Antoinette was terrified of dying in childbirth. So Jean was like, can I have a seance? with Cagliostro so I can just like see if you know so I could reassure Marie Antoinette that everything's gonna be okay I'm not sure why she did this I think she's just a shit disturber in general Jean de Lamotte but basically so there there was a seance a seance was held Cagliostro said he needed a young virginal girl and so Jean brought over her her niece Marie de Latour who had been living with her for a while um Cagliostro had expected to be a, a little girl but in fact she was 15 years old it was crucial for the seance that she'd be a virgin, basically. So he did the seance. The The teenage niece uh, said that she saw Marie Antoinette. She said that she saw some angels. She was able to tell what sort of stuff she was supposed to say. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. 
Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. That she had seen. Uh, And then later he told her that she would have a certain dream. And when she didn't, he was like, oh, that's because you're not a virgin. All of which to say, basically, this is where how Rohan, this seance becomes important later when everybody is arrested. Which is... If you find it hard to keep track of where the story is going, like, welcome to this story. It's just like, I couldn't get into Cagliostro in the Vulgar History episode because it's just like, what is even happening? It is le wild. So, so there's this seance. And then what happened is then, so when things start to go sour vis-a-vis the whole, I mean, in brief, what happened is that Jean de Lamotte got this super expensive necklace. She got Rohan to pay for it. And she said Marie Antoinette would pay him back. But in fact, Marie Antoinette didn't know about it. And Jean just took the necklace and then had her lover sell the diamonds separately, like at the end of Ocean's 8. So Rohan started to think like, I feel like I might have been robbed. And so he, sh- he had a letter that was actually written by Jean de Lamotte's lover, I think, Villette, who was a good forger. And so Rohan was like, Cagliostro, does this look like a letter written by Marie Antoinette? And Cagliostro, who remember is like a super talented forger, is like, no, not at all. That's like not even a good forgery. So Rohan was sort of a little concerned about what was happening. So Jean was trying to sort of cover her track. She started spreading rumors that Rohan had been seen making large gifts of diamonds to the Cagliostro. So she's maybe trying to say like, oh, maybe Rohan is the one who stole the necklace because what happened is the jewelers are like, no one's paid us for this necklace. Jean took the necklace and she was just sort of like running around. Everybody else was idiots. She was the smartest person. So basically, Rohan, with help of Calgaristo, figures out that he has been conned in this whole thing 
uh, Calgariosto advised him, like, basically, you have to to turn Jean de Lamont over to the police and confess everything you know to the king. And that is basically what happened. Ultimately, everybody was arrested. It came out in the, when they're all being interviewed, Jean did her best to throw Cagliostro under the bus is sort of like saying like, there was this seance, like, I don't know what this guy was doing. I, Jean, am innocent in it. Like, my niece was involved. Like, the seance was about like, is Marie Antoinette gonna live or die, which is like, basically treason, etc. Everybody got arrested. Uh, they were put in jail in the Bastille, where Cagliostro was so upset. He um, was actually put on suicide watch. And a trial happened. Everybody sort of tried to blame everybody. Jean acted very innocently. I just love that how it all sort of... Cagliostro was just sort of like running around doing all these, like defrauding people for literally decades, being terrible to his wife. And then what happened is he got caught up in a scheme that he basically had nothing to do with. But it was all just such a weird tabloid thing. At one point um, during this whole situation, Cagliostro threw Jean under the bus. She got so mad that she threw a candlestick at him, which ended up burning her own eye. So apparently it was a candlestick that was lit at the time. Cagliostro eventually was released from prison, but he was, I think, uh, banished from Paris or something for just being tangentially involved in the whole thing. He, of course, published his own memoirs. Of course he did. Part of it, he, he described himself simply as a doctor, one who cared altruistically for all mankind, irrespective of status. Uh, this is where a lot of his life story stuff comes in. That's not, he was born to a poor jeweler in the Jewish part of Sicily, but he talks about, uh, you know, going to Egypt and, you know, talking about like, am I maybe an immortal? You know, maybe I am. There were rumors that Cagliostro and his wife had escaped from their cell in the form of a dove and a wood pigeon. Like people just literally thought he was this immortal being. Um, and so his memoirs, of course, became like instant bestsellers of their time. Oh, yeah. So Cagliostro was, in fact, fully acquitted because he literally had nothing to do with that crime. But the whole trial had just sort of increased his level of fame. But then he was put back on trial or something. Oh, yeah. And then at this point, he was exiled from Paris. The whole thing is just like as, as complicated as possible as suits his whole wild situation. Ultimately, he ends up back in England. He, he claimed that the prison guards had stolen a whole bunch of expensive things that belonged to him. And in exchange, he wanted a whole bunch of money back, which, you know, maybe was true. But given his track record, was it true? He found and met some more wealthy people, including a person named um, Samuel Swinton, who I haven't verified this, but I have to think is somehow related to Tilda Swinton. And I picture this person looking exactly like Tilda Swinton. He went to live with a, an Englishman who named Lord George Gordon, who became sort of obsessed with Cagliostro. He aggressively interrogated everyone who came to visit assuming that maybe they were a French spy trying to get Cagliostro. So it was Cagliostro sort of like, this is kind of like jail, but less fun. Meanwhile, the whole French Revolution is like going to be happening soon. And he's basically just sort of bouncing from place to place. 
until they burned out everybody's best wishes. Everybody in London hated them for being, and by them I mean Cagliostro and his poor, long-suffering wife-slash-victim Serafina. They had just no one would have them anymore because they had just blackmailed everybody too much. So he and Serafina went through Italy. Uh, Serafina really wanted to return back to her family, who she hadn't seen in, at this point, something like 20 years. Since she was 14 and her whole life derailed by marrying this horrible person. So they arrived in Rome in May 1789 on the eve of the French Revolution. What happened is that Cagliostro was arrested. Somebody had betrayed him, and the person who betrayed him was, in fact, Serafina. So he had been getting increasingly unhinged, which for him is like real unhinged, uh, likely because he had late stages syphilis, which sort of like devours your brain. Serafina had been trying to kill him for a while. For instance, on one occasion, she had soaped the stairs to their house in the hopes that he would slip and fall and break his neck, but he didn't. So she basically turned him in for everything that they had done. She called it impiety, which is basically forcing her into prostitution, blackmailing people constantly, and like literally everything that he'd been doing this whole time. Just to briefly get through this. So other allegations that he was accused with included exposing himself. This is a, I'm just reading this list from the book, um, How to Ruin a Queen by Jonathan Beckman. He demanded worship of his cock as a relic, like a holy relic, encouragement to fornication, prostitution of his wife, failure to observe fast days, disparaging Jesus, Mary, the apostles, saints, cardinals, and priests, whom he called Nancy boys and cuckolds, destroying holy objects, forbidding prayer, denying Christ's divinity, God's omnipotence, and the existence of purgatory, idolatry, heresy, fraud, forgery, slander, incitement to rebellion, and rejoicing at news of revolution in France. So he was put in jail for this, and even though Serafina was the one who turned him in, he wept all the time because he missed her so much. Um, while they were in jail, the police went into their house and they uncovered a number of suspicious objects, quote, including a doll in the shape of a flexible and yielding woman, uh, two crossed swords, several rings of fire, apparatus of fumigation, tripods, and many instruments of lechery. It was a huge investigation uh, over 15 months. People went across all over Europe to try and find all the people who he had swindled. The Pope came to sit in on the interrogations of some of the witnesses. And somehow Cagliostro was sort of tied up with everyone's worries about what was happening in France vis-a-vis the revolution. So him being in Italy, they feared that he was there to sort of encourage them. But he was trying to be like, this isn't... So again, it's just sort of like he was caught for not what he did, but he did so much stuff. It's kind of like mixed emotions about this. So he was sentenced to death. But as he knelt with a black hood over his head, the punishment was mitigated. So it's like they're about to chop off his head. He's like literally on the whatever, you know, platform, whatever his head chopped off. And they're like, "Mm, you know what? Life in prison. He was not allowed. Again, he was on sort of suicide watch. He couldn't have pen or paper because they were worried he'd write more memoirs or like encourage people to rebellion in secret code or whatever. His shaving implements were confiscated as well, so he wouldn't slash his own throat. Serafina, tragically, even though she was the one who turned to men, she had been so involved with his dealings for so long, the court wasn't willing to let her go free anymore. So she was sent basically to live forever in a convent, which 
I hope she enjoyed because she had a real bad run of things there. So he was then put in a prison that's like, do you remember in early on in Game of Thrones in like season two or something when they're in the place where Catelyn's sister is and it's like a castle on top of a really high mountain and her sister's there and she's like breastfeeding her like teenage son and Tyrion is put in jail that's like at the top of a cliff and it's like there's no wall on one side because you don't need a wall because if you try to leave through that open side you'll just fall down this like extremely high cliff basically that's where Kyloster was put so he's put in a prison that's at the peak of a cliff 700 meters above a valley with a sheer drop on all sides uh, Machiavelli another potential so this asshole subject called it the strongest fortress in Europe they worried that Cagliostro might be liberated by a squadron of hot air balloonists because it's like around the time when that was a thing. So they're like, we're going to put him in this really high up prison so no one can, so he can never escape. It's like, ooh, but what if hot air balloons? So then they moved him to a more uh, lower down cell with less of a view, I guess. So even though he didn't have writing implements, he fashioned a pen using straw from his mattress and combine snuff, like tobacco, with urine and blood to make ink. After he died, it was found that he wrote a little tiny book. Well, not a little tiny book, but he found a little tiny piece of paper on which he'd written using a pen made of straw and ink made of tobacco, blood, and urine. He wrote Pius VI, which is the name of the Pope. So Pius VI, in order to comply with the desires of the Queen, has caused my sufferings. Woe betide France, Rome, and her followers. Because of the likely syphilis scenario, he was acting more and more sort of unpredictably. He was crying. He seemed to be hallucinating things. He would starve himself, and then he would, like, binge on food. He would <laughs> upend chamber pots over his captors, hiding fish in his cell to the point that the rotting stench would choke the priests who came to get him to try and confess. They had to drill a peephole in the door so he could be under like 24-hour surveillance. So even, even though the cell kept being searched, even though there was this peephole, even after he'd been shackled to the wall, it was found that he had stowed away somehow sharpened screws and rods. Like, how had he sharpened screws? How had he done this? Well, shackled to the walls they were there so he could ambush the guards potentially and maybe he did that because maybe he was a thousands of year old egyptian freemason god who knows um but basically that's not true because on the morning of august 26 1795 he had a stroke the book describes it as syphilis had etched itself through his brain um he refused the last rites of christianity because he believed in not that religion and had spent the last long time refusing to repent. Um, he died at age 52. And although he lived in like so much glamour and like the outfits and the jewels and everything, he died basically um, just this little wisp of a man with a long beard because he wasn't allowed to have shaving tools. And that was the end of Cagliostro, which is just like, what the fuck was that? story. Jesus Christ. So for these episodes, I was thinking in vulgar history, we score the women's stories on our scandaliciousness scale, not because we're comparing people against other people, but just we're kind of comparing the stories against each other's stories and seeing sort of how they 
how they shape up. And for these man stories, I was thinking, well, actually, I was thinking and I'm going to do, it's going to be like minus numbers to sort of, to show like we're not, it's a whole different scale. And this is kind of just like how much of an asshole were you? But I'm going to use the same, the same judgments. So the first number or the first category, there's four parts. The first category is scandaliciousness. And this story, Hagliostro, I mean, just like, I want to make it very clear. He was a horrible person. He um, professionally blackmailed people. He seems to have potentially killed some people. He just like annoyed everybody he ever met. He ruthlessly abused his wife who he married at age 14, like destroyed her life, never took the blame for anything, just awfulness and completely scandalous. This is like, I can't imagine a scandalous thing this man did not do. I mean, to the point that he's like in a jail cell on top of a cliff where they're like, there's the really, the real threat that somebody might come and rescue him in hot air balloons in like the 18th century because he claims that he's a thousands of year old ancient Egyptian god who invented Freemasons. It's just like, I'm giving him 10. Minus 10 for scandaliciousness, because I can't think of a scandaliciousness element not touched upon by this story. The next category is interesting because it's scheminess. And I mean, God knows there were schemes here. There was like literal schemes. He like hatched and executed plans to like blackmail people and trick people and make like fake medicine for people that wasn't real medicine. But the thing is, he kind of bought into his own legend, like after a certain point. And I don't think it's just the um, syphilis. I think it's like he started really buying into the fact that he thought he was this god, at which point it stops being schemy and it starts being sort of like sad and sort of weird. And the fact that he was arrested for twice, but not for a scheme he did if you know what i mean the scheminess i'm not sure i'm gonna give him five minus five for scheminess for significance is an interesting one because it's certainly a name i'd heard of if you look up cagliostro anywhere on the internet in a image search what you get a lot of is there's a movie called the castle of cagliostro which is not about this guy specifically but it is about sort of a famous villainous thief type person like the word in the name Cagliostro is sort of well known but he himself isn't well known and in terms of significance he didn't really although he was like super famous at the time he personally didn't really affect any major things to happen he just sort of like fucked up a bunch of people's lives so significance because his name is like quasi still used I'm gonna say like two two for significance and the final category is sexism so when we're looking at the women's story that's the sexism bonus where we give them extra points if they just because of living in a misogynist society they had like extra challenges i give them the bonus to make up for the fact that they did the best they could in a shitty situation and he and i think the guys and so this asshole episodes is going to get like a minus sexism minus where it's like, how much of a misogynist asshole was he? And I'm going to give him a 10 out of 10 for that because he was... The treatment of his wife alone is 
horrifying. So that's a 10. Let me remember the numbers I just said. So it's 25, 20, 27, minus 27 for Cagliostro, which is just like out of 40, just kind of says his story was notable, bonkers, weird, interesting. What a horrible person. And that's the thing. That's the thing. Like when I'm researching, and in this case, I was researching the story of Jean de Lamont. And just coming across the start of a Cagliostro, like I'm just saying to myself out loud at points, just like, oh, this asshole. And that's where I just felt a need to share this story with all of you. So this is a special feature. Um, so Vulgar History presents, so this asshole, the future episodes of this particular spinoff are going to be Patreon only. So if you go to patreon.com slash Writer. You can see the information there about all the stuff you get by joining my Patreon, which is mostly just like helping me out financially, but I don't blackmail you to do it. So in that sense, you wouldn't be like the people helping out Cagliostro because I'm not going to just run away with your money. I'm going to make more podcast episodes, but also I'm going to be making the free Vulgar History Podcast episodes forever for the foreseeable feature. And those are just going to be on the regular stream where you're listening to this. Anyway, uh, you can find more vulgar history stuff at I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And I have a website that's annfosterwriter.com. So you can see more stuff about me there. And thank you for joining me on this wild journey. I know, I know I'm going to remember who this man is for a very long time because the story is just like the most fucked up. So uh, my name is Ann Foster. Have a great one. Talk to you next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Ann Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.